As you take your seat, you can open with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, as we look at verses 1 through 17 once again. You remember last Sunday we began a study looking at the wonderful benefits of a life led and controlled by God's Holy Spirit. Romans 8 gives us a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit establishes a brand new life for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. And you remember I sought to draw our attention to four features of this new life in the Spirit. Last Sunday we looked at the first of those two features, namely our liberation in verses 1 through 4, that is, how the Spirit liberates us from the condemnation of the law of God. And then secondly, our concentration in verses 5 through 8, that is to say, once liberated, we have and practice a new mindset, a new focus on the things of God as the Spirit of God leads us. And so today I'd like to conclude this two-part series on Romans 8 by looking at verses 9 through 17 and the final two features of the Spirit of God in our lives and giving us new life in Christ. And that is, first of all, our obligation in verses 9 through 13, and then finally our identification in verses 14 through 17. So along with a summary of the message this morning, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to speak to every one of our hearts as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, I strengthen our Redeemer. Father, we recognize and acknowledge that your word is powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. So I pray that you would penetrate all of our hearts this morning, that we might receive encouragement, that we might receive conviction and all the other things that you would bring about in our hearts and lives as we seek to grow up to the full measure and stature of Jesus. Bless us, Lord, as we study together now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, I want you to notice the obligation, our obligation now that we belong uh, to the Lord, and that is in verses 9 through 13. And the actual obligation you see is in verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, in summary, we have an obligation, not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. Well, the things that Paul says leading up to verse 13, that is, verses 9 through 11, communicate how God enables us to fulfill the obligation He lays upon us. It's always very important to remember that our God is gracious, and He gives us the grace and the strength to do what He commands. It's not a matter of God's grace commanding us to do something and then our doing it in our own strength. God gives us the grace to do what He commands. If I could draw a summary of these couple of verses, verses 9 through 13, it would be this. Now the Spirit dwells, now that the Spirit dwells in my life and empowers me to live in obedience to Christ, I have an obligation to mortify, that is, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I want you to look at these three components of this section. First of all, the fact that the Spirit dwells in us. Look at verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed 
the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Paul is basically saying, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is a settled, permanent, penetrative influence in your life. That is what we believe as Christians. We do not live the Christian life on our own. As Jesus said and promised in the Gospel of John, He, the Holy Spirit, will live in you. He will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And as we've often studied, the Holy Spirit mediates that presence of Christ dwelling inside of our lives, in our hearts. And every true Christian has received the Spirit so that our body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. Conversely, if we do not have Christ's Spirit in us, we do not belong to Christ at all. And this makes it plain that the gift of the Spirit of God is an initial and a universal blessing received when we first repent and believe in Jesus. When I was a young person, my generation was plagued by a number of people that believed that the Holy Spirit was given as a second blessing. That somehow, even if you profess faith in Christ, you did not have the Holy Spirit until you prayed extra hard or until you performed certain uh, acts like speaking in tongues. But here the Word of God says, no, if you profess faith in Christ and you've trusted Him, that is a matter of fact you have the Spirit living inside of you. There is no so-called second blessing. He lives and reigns inside of every one of us. And so we can live a life that is empowered by Him. To know Christ and to have His Spirit are one and the same. And then secondly, not only does the Spirit dwell in us, but look, the Spirit empowers us. Look at verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, that is, the body is getting older, decaying, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Indwelling sin is the lot of all children of Adam. And the privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling Spirit to fight and subdue indwelling sin. See, as brand new believers, we still have sin in our lives. But there is a principle of new life in us as a result of our conversions. And so the Lord empowers us. He sends His Spirit to dwell in us, but also to give us life, to empower us to obey God's Word. And though our bodies are wasting away, the Spirit is renewing and empowering us every day. I love Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, the Spirit's empowerment in our life is no less than the life-giving power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that and embrace it. That God empowers me with the same power by His Holy Spirit, the same power by which He raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the power that is available to every one of us in Christ Jesus. Something else on a technical note I don't want to pass up. Notice the interchangeable nature of the three persons of the Trinity. He begins by talking about 
You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That is God. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You see the interchangeable nature of this? This is not to confuse the three persons of the Trinity by identifying the Father with the Son or the Son with the Spirit. It is rather to emphasize that although they are eternally distinct in their personal modes of being, they also share the same divine essence and will. In consequence, they are inseparable. What the Father does, He does through the Son. And what the Son does, He does through the Spirit. Indeed, wherever each is, there are the others also. And that's the beauty and the symmetry of the triune God. One God expressing Himself in three persons. Well, Paul tells us the Spirit dwells in us, and the Spirit empowers us. And then we come to the obligation, verses 12 and 13. You'll notice the transitional words. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul says we are literally debtors. Debtors. What is the debt? It is to live a righteous life in accordance with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. Listen to the words of John Stott. How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. We have no obligation to the sinful nature, to the flesh, to live according to it. It has no claim on us if we are in Christ Jesus. We owe it nothing. Our obligation is to the Spirit, to live according to His desires and His dictates. So Paul says we have this obligation. And you'll notice in verse 13, he presents an option of life and death, a life and death alternative. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're living according to the sinful nature or the flesh, he says, you will die. And this is what he has already just declared in verse 12, not to be the Christian obligation, not to live according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying we have an obligation. What is that obligation? Well, it's summed up in a word, mortification. <laughs> we don't hear that word very often. But in theological circles, it is a word that describes really the whole of the Christian life. The paradox of the Christian life. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is what life is for the Christian. And I guarantee you that is not the definition of life for the world. There is a kind of life which leads to death. And there is a kind of death which leads to life. And in the world, folks constantly search for what they call, this is life. This is the real life. This is the good life. Christ calls us to come and die. Calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. So we're going to look at the word mortification for a few moments here. What does it mean? What is this obligation that we have? 
Well, to define that, what is mortification? Let's say, first of all, it's not masochism. That is, taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain. There's some people in religious circles that cause their own selves pain, beat themselves on the back in order to experience pain. But that is not what mortification is. Not masochism. Nor is it asceticism. That is, resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. No, mortification is not masochism or asceticism. It's rather a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a de decisive and radical repudiation of it that no, Im no imagery can do it justice except putting it to death. Paul speaks elsewhere as the crucifixion of our fallen nature with all of its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is Paul's elaboration on the summons of the Lord Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. That's what mortification is. It really has little to do with us causing ourselves pain or with denying that there's any enjoyment in life. No. It is looking at the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, realizing that I must put some things to death in my life. That there is an ongoing struggle, a tenacious battle between the flesh and the Spirit, as Paul said in Galatians 5. Charles Cranfield renders the phrase this way, putting to death the activities and schemings of the sinful flesh, of human self-centeredness, of self-assertion. We all know those feelings come, don't we? We know that when we are ignoring the Spirit of God, ignoring the Word of God, and trying to please ourselves or assert ourselves or consider ourselves as the centerpiece of the world, we know we're going in a bad direction whenever we do that. And so the whole of the Christian life is not about satisfying yourself or pleasing yourself. It's about denying yourself. Well, that is what mortification is, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, how does mortification take place? Well, in the work of mortification, we are not passive, waiting for it to be done for us or to us. Some Christian traditions actually teach that sort of thing. On the contrary, we are responsible for putting evil to death. The true Paul immediately adds that we can put to death the misdeeds of the body only by the Spirit, by His agency and power, for only He can give us the desire and the determination and the discipline to reject evil. Nevertheless, it is we who must take the initiative to act. And we do this in two ways, negatively and positively. Negatively, we must totally repudiate everything we know to be wrong and not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature, as Paul says in the Scriptures. Romans 13, 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is ugly business. We have to pull it out, look at it, and denounce it. Hate it for what it is. Then you have to really, then you've really dealt with it. 
as Jesus said graphically in Mark chapter 9, you must gouge out the offending eye and cut off the offending hand or foot. That is, if temptation comes to us through what we see, handle, or visit, what we taste, that we must be ruthless in not looking, not touching, not going, and so in controlling the very approaches of sin. I think too often we take our sins so lightly. We spend most of the time trying to justify it. Most of the time trying to soften the blow that God's Word might deliver to us in connection to our sin. Well, that's negatively. Now, positively, we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What the Spirit desires. We talked about this in the second point last week, about our concentration. What do you spend your time concentrating on? What is your mindset? Paul said in Colossians 3.1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And then he said, Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Writer Proverbs says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts are going to condition how you behave. Well, that is what mortification is, and that's how it takes place, both positively and negatively. Let me ask one final question. Why should we practice mortification? I mean, let's face it, it sounds tough. <laughs> mortification sounds like an unpleasant and even a painful business. It runs counter to our natural tendency to soft and lazy self-indulgence. And so if we're going to engage in it, we must be driven by some strong motives. And one of them, as we've already seen, is our obligation in verse 12, to the indwelling spirit of life. But there's another motivation which Paul insists on, and that is the death of mortification is the only road to true life as a believer. Verse 13 contains the most marvelous promise, which is expressed in a simple Greek verb. You will live. You will live. Paul's not talking about physical life on this earth. He's not talking about the eternal life later on in heaven. What he is saying is, if you want to live the abundant life that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 15, if you want to experience all that life was ever meant to be, then the roadway there is mortification of sin. Holiness, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul is alluding to the life of God's children who are led by the Spirit. Having called eternal life a free and undeserved gift in chapter 6, Paul is now showing us the practical pathway to appropriate this eternal life. Not simply waiting around to die and go to heaven. No, Jesus said, I give you life that is abundant now. How? Well, through this paradox. See, according to Romans 6, it is only by dying with Christ to sin, its penalty thereby paid, that we rise to a new life of forgiveness and freedom. Well, here he is now in Romans 8. It is saying it is only by putting our evil deeds to death that we experience the fullness of the abundant life of God's children. 
Thus, we need to redefine both life and death. And as I mentioned previously, there is a kind of life which leads to death, and there's a kind of death which leads to life. The life which this world celebrates is a life that leads to death. But whenever we find ourselves in Christ Jesus and we press in to knowing better, and we die to ourselves and die to our sins and pluck out the eye and cut off the hand of any of those areas, it would lead us in the direction of doing that which we know is wrong. That's the kind of death that leads to life. What the word of what the world calls life is self-fulfillment, self-indulgence. That leads to an alienation from God, which in reality is death. And conversely, the putting to death all the perceived evil within us, which the world sees as undesirable denial of self, is in reality the way to authentic life. It's a paradox. Just like about everything else in the Christian experience. It's a paradox. Jesus highlights it in our gospel reading for today. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those words seem impossible, don't they? But you see, Jesus also said, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What he meant by that is, again, he never asks us to do what he himself does not enable us to do. And here, by his Holy Spirit, how am I going to deny myself? By his Holy Spirit's power. How am I going to take up my cross and follow him? By his Holy Spirit's power. Everyone in the Greco-Roman world knew what a cross meant. When somebody said, take up your cross and follow me, they knew that meant a death sentence. And that's the hardest thing for all of us, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, is to die to self daily. To get up and remember that Christ lives in me by His Spirit. And I'm a part of the body of Christ. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As he said in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the whole of the Christian life. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not finding yourself and your identity. It's losing yourself in Christ Jesus. So that more and more, His life shines through you. Now you're experiencing the abundant life. And you walk around not with superficial happiness, but with deep down joy. Because you belong to Christ. And He's living His life through you. No wonder the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 11, and 12, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life works in you, Corinthians. Hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? The Spirit of God leads us in this direction. But this is abundant life. And what a great motive. Because when you are dealing with your sin, you're never closer to Jesus than when you're dealing with your sin. The Spirit of God desires holiness. And that's why he says the children of God are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They're demonstrating they're being led by the Spirit. The 
Spirit's main objective is to make us holy, not make us charismatic, not to make us do wonderful things or feats of power. No, the main objective is holiness, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Why should we mortify the deeds of the flesh? Because it's through that pathway and portal that we experience what life was always meant to be, according to our God, as He transforms the human race, all those who believe in Him, in the human race, back to the beauty of what we were created to be in the beginning. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. That is our obligation. And only God can give us the grace to do it and the strength and the power. So every day we get up, we have to reckon ourselves dead to trespasses and sins and alive to God in Christ Jesus and lay ourselves at His mercy and grace and do what Jesus said, pray that you will not enter into temptation. The motive of Scripture is not to give us something that makes us walk away and say, how can I ever do this? No, the motive of Scripture is to say, come. Come through the portal. Look at the paradox. And earnestly desire the Lord's working in your life. And when you are in the teeth of temptation, when you feel like you can't go any further, it's at that point that God's Spirit and God's grace are manifested all the more to strengthen you and encourage you to get through the difficulty. Don't we see that in Scripture? Remember when Stephen was being martyred in Acts chapter 7? It wasn't until the very end when they took up stones to stone him after that marvelous sermon. And what happened? The Spirit of glory and of God appeared, and he saw the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. But he didn't see that until he came to that ultimate moment where he decided, I'm not turning back, and I will not deny the Lord Jesus. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 4, I believe, remember it's a joy to suffer for Christ, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Some things you'll never experience until you walk through that gauntlet, that challenge, and you make up your mind that I am not going to neglect living for Jesus Christ as he lived for me? Am I living for Christ as He lived for me? That's a great question to ask every morning. Well, that is our obligation. Now quickly and finally, our identification in verses 14 through 17. Notice, after the, the difficult part, the obligation, we have these wonderful words of identification and consolation. Verse 14, the Spirit gives us a new identity. Paul tells us that we have a new identity because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of Almighty God. And once again, without a doubt, verse 14 is connected to verse 13. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Holiness. Holiness. That's what it means. Supreme. Verse 15, the Spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship to God. You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He continues with a constant or a contrast between the old life, which is characterized by a spirit of slavery and fear, and the new life. You perceive a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We read something of that this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 7. An example of God's loving election and the adoption of His people. You're not my people because I chose you because you're the best, or you're the cleanest, or the holiest. No! He chose and elected us unto salvation because of His love exclusively. He targeted us with His kindness and grace. And we have been adopted into the family of God. And so we don't have to live in fear anymore. Not only that, in verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Paul has already alluded to this reality in verses 14 and 15, but here he speaks directly about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Put it this way, it's one thing to know that you're a child of God. It's another thing to feel it emotionally in your own soul. And that's what the Spirit does for us. He testifies that we belong to God by faith in Christ Jesus. And it moves us. God is not just an intellectual God. <laughs> that's important for us Presbyterians. <laughs> we need to know about emotion. And we need to know about action. Because God touches all of these areas in the gospel. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then finally, the Spirit is the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. You know, the transition from a slave to a son or a daughter is huge. It's as huge as it is incomprehensible. This kind of phenomenon happens very rarely in this world. How many slaves do you know who got adopted into a family unit? No, it's rare. But it's clear and regular in the gospel. And so we come full circle from where we began last Sunday. The Spirit has brought us our liberation from the condemnation of the law and our sin. The Spirit leads us to a new mental state, a new concentration on the things of God. The Spirit outlines, thirdly, our obligation and empowers us to carry it out. And finally, the Spirit provides abundant identification so that we know who we are, sons and daughters of God, who live in a very perverse and a corrupt world. That's what we have going on politically. Morally, people saying, I'm not willing to put myself to death for anything. I'm not willing to practice self-denial. I want what I want. And I want to live the way that I live. And I want to define what truth is for me. And I want control over my own body, even if I do something that God forbids. I want. This is the only way I'll be fulfilled. Christ comes diametrically opposed to that. He says, lay down your life. Take up your cross. Follow me. And I'll show you what true life is really all about. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for the Spirit's leading in our lives. Lord, we can say honestly we're fools for Christ's sake. 
Often we are mistaken and wrong in so many ways. And so I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, that your Spirit would dwell inside of every one of our hearts. And Lord, if there's one or two or even more today that have never known what it is to have the Spirit testify inside of their own hearts that they're a son or a daughter of God, that, Lord, I pray you would sovereignly invade that life or those lives and save those persons. Let them taste and see that the Lord is good. Bring them into which life eternal is indeed, in a relationship with your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, do these things continually mold us and make us into the image of Jesus and empower us to live not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. We give you praise and glory for all that you will do in our lives, in our church, and we make our prayer in Jesus' name.